One of the big challenges when you're a teacher is that everybody who comes to you is at a different skill level, or they have a different social emotional dynamic to them, or, you know, everybody's an individual. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. In 1995, Linda Weinman joined forces with her husband and business partner, Bruce Haven, to start the venerable Lynda.com. What began as a way to further Linda's work as a teacher at Art Center and as the author of a celebrated book on web design, Lynda.com ultimately pioneered a highly regarded and exceedingly effective approach to online learning. In 20 short years, the company became unparalleled in the size and quality of its online library. And in 2015, LinkedIn purchased lynda.com for a staggering $1.5 billion. Today we discuss Linda's trajectory, how her tough childhood and early dislike of school became the impetus for her career in teaching and for her most compelling perspective on the value and nature of a good education. She also talks about life after selling her business, cultivating her own beginner's mind, and the joys and challenges of creating an identity outside of work. Great. So thank you. Thank you so much, Linda, for doing this. I really just want to open this to a conversation. You know, it's, it's interesting because reading about you and your story and your history a lot focuses on the business. So I think that story has been well told in a lot of ways. And I, what I'm hoping that we can do is maybe get to the rest of the story, as they say, um, and explore certain, certain issues or certain ideas, um, you know, relevant to what this podcast is about in terms of creativity and in terms of change and in terms of how the, the self and the development of the self is really relevant to that. So what I, I'm going to start in a slightly different place for you, uh, and that is, uh, I, as I was reviewing my files, I saw that I, when you sold lynda.com, uh, the w Wall Street Journal called me and interviewed me to talk about you. And I said, and I'm really proud of this, she's a born teacher, and that's what drove the whole thing. And then as I go through the materials and you you've said it about yourself and lots of people have said it about you. So that's where I want to start. I want to start with a sense of uh, your reflections on who you are as a teacher and how you think about how that informed your life and your work and your passions. And I think that is such a great question. And I, I love uh, the thought that you put behind asking it to you because it is sort of boring for me to keep saying things that are already mm -hmm. out there, right? Um, but don't get me wrong. It's a great story. Well, thank you. <laughs> but it's been told. It's been told. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, I had no idea I was a great teacher or that I had teaching ability whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So if I really go back and think about myself as a child and the experiences that I had in my childhood, some of them were really tough. And I came from a broken home. I was sent to live with my grandparents for a couple of years. I kind of became responsible for my younger siblings, or at least I felt responsible for them. And so I became an adult 
way before a lot of kids become adults. And I was always very mature, very responsible, and um, kind of a caretaker, I would say, is one kind of theme in my life. And another one is that I had to be a mediator for a lot of different kinds of people, like, you know, living with elderly people when you're very young, living uh, with two parents who don't get along. Right. All of the sorts of social situations right. I found myself in, I had to learn how to adapt to each one and how there wasn't just sort of one normal for me. And I think that one of the big challenges when you're a teacher is that everybody who comes to you is at a different skill level or they have a different social emotional dynamic to them or, you know, everybody's an individual. And I know that's very daunting when you're a new teacher because you stand in front of a classroom and you don't know where your baseline is. You don't know who knows what, how people learn. And I had maybe just an acute sensitivity and intuition about that. And I would say that my philosophy was always to put myself in the shoes of people who don't know and to not in any way intimidate them because... I had a lot of things that intimidated me when I was in school, and they kept me from learning in a traditional way. So I was very sensitive to that, and I think had probably a type of teaching philosophy that was maybe different than a lot of other teachers, and that rather than showing off what I knew, which is what I think a lot of teachers do, um, I was really interested in how do I actually transfer knowledge to people, and, and what and and what can I do that makes that more approachable, more accessible? Right. And, uh, you know, as you speak, I'm having the thought, to, to what extent, and you, maybe you implied this, to what extent was your own s reflection on the kind of learner you were a spur for the kind of teacher you became? It had 100% to do with what kind of teacher I became because I was actually a very poor student in some regards. Now, when I was... Young before my parents got divorced, I was a straight-A student. I actually skipped first grade, which I felt was almost a punishment. I didn't like it, but I know that I was a smart kid, and I, and I did well in school. But once I had the divorce and sort of a lot of acrimony and just dysfunction in my own home situation, which wasn't stable, then I became inward, and it was hard for me to focus on school. And so... I was more the kind of learner, I'm really a, you know, sort of a quintessential autodidactic learner where I have to do things, experience things and teach myself most things. I'm not one to learn from a book or learn from a lecture. And so I think what I did, and especially became apparent when I learned computers, which was when I discovered I was a teacher, was I retraced my own learning steps. And I kind of repeated what I found to be difficult to learn or the things that I discovered along the way from making mistakes and trying different approaches. And I think that also was a technique that helped people feel a little bit more comforted as, you know, they were learning. Because I think if you're trying to learn from somebody who's very arrogant and kind of is using a lot of language you don't understand or, or super academic and um, I guess I always think of myself as that wounded child who couldn't pay attention in class and needed to do things on my own. And just about wherever I went, I was 
a very popular teacher with wait lists. So I knew I was doing something that people responded to. And then when that was able to go into book form and that was able to go into the videos, then that was something that, you know, we almost didn't bottle and reproduce, but because you can't do that. I mean, all teachers are different, but there was a philosophy behind the pedagogy of the of lynda.com and, you know, being very clear to people and never um, really trying to avoid this sort of intimidation tactic, right. which so is so easy. Right, so you can trace it back to your own sense of, uh, of teaching. And I, I, I assume your book on web... Uh, web design too was absolutely in yeah. fact um when i submitted the manuscript it you know it was all first person very personal book and written in a extremely friendly way the same way that i taught and they actually changed it because it was a technical publisher and they took it out of first person and they tried to make it sound more academic and um i was horrified and i you know i actually refused to let them publish it that way so so it got switched back? That switched, it got switched back. And then people who read that book would say, I felt like you were standing over my shoulder. I really felt like I had a guide and I had somebody who was explaining everything really clearly to me. So I'm not sure how, you know, it happened that I became that teacher. But my suspicion is that it came from all this turmoil when I was young and having to be pleasing different people and difficult to please people and lots of, from from lots of different sort of perspectives and understanding that there isn't just one way to approach things. And I wonder if this question makes sense to you, but, um, and I can explain more if you want me to, but is teaching your most comfortable place? Actually, it is not. And that's such a good question too. I love your questions. Um, I actually prefer to be more eye to eye with somebody than above somebody. And I'm that, I'm that kind of leader, too. I don't really like subordinates. I like peers. And I like to kind of be amongst the people versus, you know, above the people. And so, so the collaborative yeah. speaks to you more than the, I don't know what the paradigm is, the lecture or the talking, right? I mean, yes. it doesn't sound like you're a teacher that, that does all the speaking anyway. I'm not. So widening the circle a little bit... Um, I, I read somewhere that you meditate or you value meditation, mm -hmm. and I wonder how that informs who you are and that what kind of practice you have. Well, it's relatively new. I've only just recently learned to meditate in the last two years. And is it mindfulness meditation? Um, it's it? TM, actually, um, where you're given, a, you're given a mantra and um, you're supposed to do it 20 minutes, two times a day, which I'm not perfect at. And um, I just have found as I've gotten older that I'm much more susceptible to stress and it's sort of a anything that I can do to keep myself a little bit more balanced. Um, you know, I think maybe all of those years of running the company and then, you know, the years up to that, they were, they were actually quite stressful and is hard on your health when you get older. So I, I do find that meditation is really fascinating though. I almost feel like it's, the same thing as dreaming, but you're awake, where your mind, you just don't know where you're going to go. And you find yourself thinking about all kinds of things you wouldn't mm -hmm. normally mm -hmm. think about. Right, um, so right. I really love it. Right. Is there any connection for you with what you're discovering in your, um, uh, even this brief time of, medi of meditating and practicing meditation and your sense of yourself as a teacher? Oh, I, you know, well, I don't think of myself much as a teacher anymore. And it's, and, you know, that's sort of such an interesting 
point that you're, I think, searching for. Um, you know, when you say, are you more comfortable teaching? Um, I'm actually really not. And I don't even want to be on the stage anymore. You know, I rarely grant interviews. I don't do a lot of public speaking anymore. Um, I'm not expert on anything. I used to be expert on all the technology I would teach. And, you know, I've let all of that lapse. And that's just not really been my focus. Mm. Um, But I do enjoy being a leader. And what that means to me is just being a facilitator or a conduit for people to be able to work together and come to good decisions together. And so one of the new areas that I've gone into is to be president of, the, of a board for the film festival in Santa, Santa Barbara. Barbara right. And it's a very small group. You know, it's a probably a 12-person board, and then we have a five-person staff. And uh, it's just exactly the right size group where you can get your arms around it and let everybody shine. Mm-hmm. And I really get a lot of pleasure from that. Um, And I also love to listen, you know, because I think people who are teachers often prefer to hear themselves talk rather than to listen to others. And I find people and life so fascinating that I'm always looking to, you know, absorb something new or or get a new idea or just, you know, be exposed to something that I wasn't exposed to before. I crave change and I crave new impetus and stimulation. And so... Um, when you're the teacher or when you're on the stage or you're being, you know, elevated on a pedestal, you don't always get that opportunity. And I, and I missed that. I've certainly found for me, I mean, the connection with teaching and leadership is very close and, the meditation part is interesting to me, too, because as you were saying, you can access a part of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that I have to access deeper parts of myself in order to lead well as I lead the college. So it all becomes, you know, tied right. together in really interesting yeah, ways I for me. Really, yeah, I haven't really, you know, given much thought to that, and I'm fairly new at meditation. So I'm not sure that well, it's ever had, yeah. had much impact yeah, on yeah. anything except to calm me down, <laughs> which it's very effective at. Oh, and, is, you know, I, and I yeah. think that's so valuable. Right, right, yeah. right. So then the third area that I, I just wanted to explore, um, you know, as much as one reads about you, one doesn't read about you as an artist or a designer, mm-hmm. as a creative mm-hmm. soul. And I wonder if you could share with us what what that is for you and what it is now and because it's so there it's so in your roots right but it's not talked about a lot well you know? it's you know it's funny because i don't consider myself to be an artist well, or a that's designer the question there yeah, yeah. and yeah. I, some of us do though so you I, should know I guess that. Yeah. so well i mean i know that people believe that i'm creative and i um you know i i think creativity is not always associated with the art so i'm probably a creative business mind and more of a problem solver. And, but I'm not a creator. I'm not a maker. And I would like to become one, but it isn't something that I've made time to do. So I couldn't tell you. Now, I used to work in the film industry before I was a teacher. And I had a reel of materials that I had created. And some of them I had designed. Sometimes I'd worked with other designers and executed their designs. Um, and I think back when I was doing that kind of work, I was more of a maker, but I, I felt, but that wasn't my passion. And I almost felt that that career was a bit of a fraud because it wasn't, 
nearly to me as important as the teaching work that I did and the translation of technology to people who needed to know it but weren't wired to understand it. And I really, you know, felt especially like I'd found my purpose at Art Center when I was teaching here and when I was writing my books, that my purpose is this translator and, you know, teacher to help wonderful artists. I mean, there was no greater joy than the week where you would see all the student projects and, you know, get to see the result of all the hard work during the semester. Um, and that was a huge reward to me, more than me making things. So it's just, I guess we're all different. Well, more of that later, because I think we can tie in some of your work um, at Linda and that sort of creative impulse. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll return to that. So now I want to talk about Summerhill. Okay. And... Um, because that book was enormously important to me, too. I don't know if you remember, one of the first times we met, you and I found uh, that common ground. Um, and I remember it, like you, um, I, I ended up going to what was called a free school at the yeah, time, right? Yeah, um, when I was dissatisfied, for many of the reasons I've heard you outline as well, with what the traditional education model was. And this mm -hmm. was a chance for me to kind of pursue my interests and to create and build my own education and be a creative participant in that, too. Yeah. So first, before we get too deep into that, if you could just talk about the book, talk about Summerhill, talk about its... its uh, importance in your life and how it ended up, I know it influenced where you went to school. Oh, for high sure. School, yeah. um, you know, I mean, first of all, I was deeply unhappy. And I, I always just say loosely, it was because of a divorce, but it was just, I had a very tough situation at home. And I was depressed. And, you know, we didn't even use words like that commonly back when I was younger. And so I, I just found school to be incredibly grueling, incredibly pointless. Um, it, I remember, you know, t riding my bike to go register for junior high school and just crying the entire ride home and just thinking, I just don't, that's just not where I want to be, you know, um, not what I want to do with my yeah, life. No, and the 14-year-old in me relates to oh, it completely. You know, yeah, it was I, so painful. I was so, there too, yeah. Um, you know, I think the things in the book that were uh, in, inviting to me, the the biggest notion was that you could, if you were given the opportunity to pick out of anything, that you would find your calling, you know, because by just dangling a carrot of a good grade and making everybody a generalist and judging everybody by the same rules, that was a lot less likely to happen. And, and that idea that you would find your passion, it had absolutely never occurred to me or that you could create your own destiny in, in a certain way, that you were in charge of your future path. And that was such a revolutionary idea. And I, I fortunately learned about it so young that that was what I aspired to. It did not come to me quickly. I, I felt, you know, like I was really behind. In fact, I remember on my 30th birthday feeling that all of my friends had surpassed me, that I just hadn't achieved what I wanted to achieve, that I was, you know, just floundering, doing stuff that wasn't really my passion and that I was never going to find my and passion. And was this tied to the school you went to? I think it was just I had the awareness that I had not found it, but that Summerhill gave me the promise and the premise that it's out there. If you, if you let the your own heart and mind guide you towards what you interests you what truly interests you that you will find your purpose and you will find your passion and i was searching for it and i really hadn't found it at that age i was doing interesting things i had 
you know, I had an interesting job working in the special effects industry, but it was not my passion and it really wasn't my choosing. I had sort of fallen into it through nepotism and things. And I just felt like I was going through life falling into things and not finding the it thing. And then I would meet people, you know, who knew uh, they wanted to be an artist from the time they were three, you know, like Bruce, my husband, you know, he knew from being a little kid, that was what he was going to do. So you just feel so behind and you and you feel like, well, there's this thing that I know I'm looking for, and I just haven't found it. Um, and I think in some ways, it's, it's a blessing to know that it's there and to keep searching for it. And that's really what you have to do. And I also think it's a it's an inspirational story that I didn't truly find my passion until I was in my late 30s. I didn't start lynda.com till I was 40. And that, you know, there's hope for a lot of people who haven't found their passion, that it's kind of never too late. You should just keep looking if you haven't found it. But you do trace the roots of this to, to, to the Summerhill ideas. I absolutely ideas. think yeah. summer, there were two things. I would say Summerhill and feminism, because I also read, um, you know, some of the early feminist writings and Ms. Magazine and um, those you know, like the Betty Friedan book. And that was another epiphany. Like, okay, my mom was a housewife and a secretary and didn't go to college. And, um, you know, I could, she, she wanted me to go to college to, literally to meet a man who was going to provide a better living than her husband had provided her, you know, my dad. And so that just isn't a very big aspiration. And then to have this idea out there that, you know, oh, you can actually aspire to be anything you want. Well, I didn't know what it was that I wanted, but I again, it gave me permission to look, and it gave me the faith that it was out there and that I just needed to, you know, keep going over all of those hurdles, whatever it was going to take. And definitely in the special effects work that I had done, it was very, very male-dominated, and then computers were also very male-dominated. So that encouragement of feminism was such a driving force. And between that and Summerhill, I would say it's they both shaped my life. beautiful combination, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just um, out of interest, we recently had a... Um, a, uh, a design storm here at Art Center where students were working on the uh, the future of art and design education. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and uh, they came up with all sorts of really interesting ideas, as right. you would expect. But here's what really fascinated me and I think would be really of interest to you, too. It sounded like what we talked about when we were teens and we were, you know, really inspired by Summerhill. It was all about the freedom to discover. It was all about the chance encounter. It was all about being able to follow their passion. It was all about finding out who they were and then letting that drive the learning. Mm -hmm. It was, it was fascinating. And, and the kind of open, uh, free deliberate use of that word kind yes. of context that school could build for them. And it was, it was, it was, you, you would have recognized the conversation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's uh, wonderful that they're coming to that conclusion because I don't know that I would have, you know, I mean, this book was such a revolutionary idea. It was certainly something I had never considered. Right. And right. the same was really true of feminism as well. So as I'm looking at, at your, your and thinking about your life, I, I'm seeing it manifest in all kinds of ways. And I, and if it's okay, I, I wanted to read a very beautiful passage from your, your talk at Otis. And you were talking to them about that our current school paradigm is based on an outdated industrial model 
um, as you say, that rewards rote learning and getting test answers right. And you saw lynda.com as a, as a kind of response to that. Um, a library of instructional videos made available to individuals and organizations that is based on a different model, a model that began to take shape in my imagination back when I read those two books those two books perhaps were the two books that you just referenced, Correct. right? Yes. There are no grades and no prerequisites. Our library relies on the self-motivation of learners to navigate its wide breadth of knowledge. It knows no geographical, gender, race, political, or religious boundaries. It is flexible so that it meets learners at their skill level and is different for every person who uses it. It is affordable and available all the time, any hour of the day or night. It's anonymous, so you don't have to be judged by what you do not know. Beautifully said. Thank you. And I guess my question is, is the online learning world, as you saw it, as you experienced it, as you created it, the culmination of those Summerhill values? Oh, lynda.com by far was a culmination of those values. Um, but I think there's another piece of it that online can never satisfy. And that is really the premium ticket in our day and age of where so many things are online and so many things are impersonal and we're, you know, talking to each other in sound bites and, you know, Twitter feeds. And, uh, you know, I think human interaction and being around people and the creative process and the, um, you know, critical thinking that is involved when you are with actual people is um, a missing piece of online. And it's I where where I always like to think is what would what is the sweet spot? What does online do better than in person? And what does in person do better than online? And they're really both needed. Um, so but absolutely, lynda.com was modeled on Summerhill. There's there's just no doubt. Right. Yeah. So, so it carries those values, but it's Correct. not complete in and of itself, Correct. is your point. Right. Yes. Right. Um, and I often talk about, as we explore online learning here at Art Center, I often talk about what we need to find is not how to, how to reproduce face-to-face -face learning on the online environment to find that unique world, just what you're saying yes. about a way of learning. And the comparison is to social media. Social media doesn't replace the dinner party, right? Correct. Social media is a different kind of way unique to that online environment that allows people to interact with well, each that's other. That's right. And right. social media does certain things that you can't do at a dinner party. And I think that's really what the question of the you know moment is, is what is the right application of all of these different, you know, situations. Some of them are in person, some of them are online, some of them are to the math, you know, one to many, some are one to few. It's it, there's, there's a whole, you know, sort of spectrum of what it all could be right. and should be. Right, right. So one, one of the questions then I wanted to follow up on too, in terms of what gets taught and what lynda.com specifically was able to teach, um, were certain kinds of skills, that skill part. I know you taught other things and mm -hmm. there were other ways and, but, and, and, I, I'm interested in, in your reflection on that, what those skills were for. And I want to put it in the context of what I think we do at Art Center. And I think that skill is the fundamental to the freedom of the artist or the designer. Mm -hmm. I think the greater the skill, really, the greater the freedom. And I talk a lot about that as fundamental to an Art Center education. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, 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 if skill was understood in the same kind of way or if that was part of your educational model as you as you built these, this library of offerings? 
Well, I really think that skill is a little bit temporal. You know, I think that there are certain skills that may not change, you know, in the context of Art Center, knowing how to draw, I would say it would be important to whatever discipline you're going to go into. Um, but I think that there are so many things, especially in technology, that are so fast changing. And so the pre- a lot of the premise of what we were doing was to capture the moment of, you know, you would you would use this software today in this way, understanding that maybe a year or two later that could change and that this was a really good way to share the kind of knowledge, you know, the skill, as you're calling it. But it's of, a competency, really. Yes. With, I see. Correct. Um, within, Correct. The, within the context of that. Yes. And, but I think what, what Art Center, at least to me, because I think Art Center has been very successful at design thinking, problem solving, critical thinking, and some of these more uh, difficult to really define how you teach those things, but provided these opportunities for that kind of a, um, you know, outcome, that that to me is what separates an art student from a lot of other students, um, in that they can think their way out of a problem and also are open to learning something that they don't already know. And that's huge. Right. There is a kind of discipline, as you know. I mean, you saw it. Yes. That we really try to, and it's linked to, you know, Gladwell's 10,000 hours. It's like you, you've got to just, you have to have that practice. You need to know that cold, you know, that that skill-based cold, that, that you know, that instrument cold. Yeah, I, I don't know to... that I 100% agree with that or that I, that I see it the same way. Um, because I think that some of the skills are are very fast changing, and some of them are universal and you know timeless, but but not all. And I have met many many art center students who bought my book, for example, or who you know contacted me for a workshop or something outside after their education, and they totally missed the digital revolution. You know, they were here before computers and. They felt at such a disadvantage. It wasn't a shortcoming of Art Center because those things didn't exist and Art Center could not have taught them. But by saying that it's that the skill is really the prime, you know, pr- of primary importance, I, I think it it shares importance with the ability to think and the ability to be adaptable and you know all of these other just more amorphous sort of social uh, skills. Then, then, you know, knowing how, I mean, some of the skills that, that were taught are, are really archaic, you know, how to draw a typeface or whatever. They don't, right. they don't have any practical application anymore. Right, right. No, I think I was talking about those immutable life, you okay. know, okay. lifelong well, then skills that, that I, you know, I completely that, that, agree like with. sketching is the key, right? is, yes. a, is, a, is a great example of yes. what I'm talking about, um, uh, learning how to see in a certain kind of way, learning how to you know, develop ideas in a certain kind of way that are rooted in uh, uh, a kind of a discipline that that is brought to the work for sure but you know i also think one of the what i witnessed that, that i think is one of the key beautiful aspects of arts education in particular is what a student will take away from being exposed to critiques and that is so applicable in real life you know um, in the business world, for example, you know, being able to take criticism, being able to understand when your idea isn't resonating with people, um, understanding that you have to keep getting back in there and fighting for it. You know, um, you don't just get shut down and then go away and hide under your desk. You know, you, it just it it 
really, to me, imbues these critical life skills that make people successful in business. And because Art Center is actually a really tough school, and it isn't, um, you know, it, it isn't a free ride. It's 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 actually a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. But I think that carries over and it builds this kind of fortitude that not every student who goes through other types of arts education get. Right, right. Well, it's interesting that you talk about critique. I love to talk to students here about critique. But what I, uh, I like to, the message I like to give is how they decide to use that particular process. So um, I want to move on to talking a little bit about failure. And I know that we talk about failure as a great learning tool, mm-hmm. right? And many have said that. And, and in a way, you know, even there's students at Art Center now who are doing a TEDx right now on the, on, on the issue of failure, on how to fail, right? right? Uh-huh. It's, 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 it is really interesting. But I'm struck by almost the glorification of failure. And something about it rubs me in a kind of funny way. And I'm wondering if that resonates for you at all or how you think about it. Well, I don't put it on a pedestal, certainly. Um, I think failure is really a lot of it is a mindset. You know, um, are you going to let failure stop you from trying? And that's really where failure becomes a problem. Um, I think everybody encounters failure. There are no exemptions. It's just part of being alive. And um, it is, you know, you, you, you keep, you only succeed after you have failed most often. So it's, it's for sure part of a process. But um, I think that there, you know, for some people, it just stops them in their tracks. And it really, there are so many sad people in the world who just have stopped trying. And that, I think, is, you know, the biggest failure of all, right? Um, so I don't know that I put it on any kind of pedestal. Right. L- let, me ask it, may, let me ask the question this way, if this makes sense to you. Do you think that the, the, the discussion about failure and that its repeated kind of necessity is a question of privilege? Hmm. Can, can somebody who has not, been successful in life or maybe somebody who doesn't have a context or is underserved or is in a in a context where if they fail that kid in that community who fails may not ever have a chance again mm-hmm. and i'm just i i i and that's what kind of i wonder about with respect to how we talk about failure mm-hmm. and are we talking about it from a some a certain kind of privileged perspective i mean i think i see it in so many ways i don't just see it as you know you failed at a job task or you've gotten a bad grade or, you know, you've, you've failed. I think of it as a, in a much more universal way that every single human being has to fail. And it, and I certainly think that when you live in an environment of hopelessness, you're not given that faith that you can kind of get back up and keep trying and that that's what you have to do in fact. But I don't, I don't think it's impossible for, uh, anybody in any circumstance to learn that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, for sure. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's a context and a perspective, I think, that I'm, mm-hmm. that I'm interested in and how we talk about it. I, I, I feel like it might be important for us to put a different dimension on, on that notion because I think it is, 
um, not, uh, and I don't mean this from you, but I mean, I think in a general discourse, it is glorified in a certain mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And I think we need to be careful about how we talk about it. You know? Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm not, you know, familiar with it being talked about in that way, but I do think that, you know, we all run the risk of coming from our own perspective and not understanding somebody else's, not understanding other people's condition. And I love the, um, the process, like for me, my creative process, if I guess I'll call it that, writing the book, for example, or the way I would teach would be to try to put myself in the shoes of others and think about from their point of view, what's going to be hard about this and, and where are they going to stumble and how can I help them through those things. And so I wish that more things in the world were thought about in that sort of, you know, human centered way where you're really trying to have that empathy for, you know, what the problem you're trying to solve and then who's affected and how are they going to view this solution and how it's going to work for, you know, for this and for that, you know, like, let's say we're going to take on a, you called it a design storm, I think, for the future of education. So it would have to work not just for the students, but for the teachers and for the administrators and for the college as a business entity. And, you know, there's all these different perspectives. So we tend to often just think about our own perspective in the world. And if we can think about more, um, we get better solutions to things. Right, right. So that's a, that actually is a really good transition to um, to talking about lynda.com a little bit. And, and I have specific kinds of questions mm-hmm. about lynda.com. Um, um, first of all, I uh, and it, it's a good transition from the failure piece because uh, it, I want to know how you think about how you persisted through really difficult times. I, I mean, I, you've already said it for your life, but mm-hmm. now we have it, a return again for the, the, the business itself. Um, and as things turned upside down, where you found that tenacity to get through such mm-hmm. an important quality that we want to encourage mm-hmm. in our students all the time. Bruce talked about it in a very interesting way. He talked about love. He talked about the love of learning and the love of what the teaching was about and the love of education. And it was, it was quite moving uh, to hear that. And uh, so I want to hear it now from, from you about what, 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 drove you and got you through and well i wouldn't have gone to that um where he took it but you know that was certainly a factor you know just this trying to take this idea of summerhill and making it into you know how do you amplify that and make it into a tool that so many people can use and of course you know i think bruce and i both felt so driven by the principle behind what we were trying to create and share Um, But I think, you know, I would look at my own evolution as a leader and as a business owner, um, some I'm very proud of and some things I wish I could do over, you know, I'm, I'm human. Uh, There were lots of things that I, that I did that I um, would do differently in hindsight, because hindsight gives you perfect vision, right? Uh, So I think that I feel incredibly lucky that I had a partner with Bruce because um, even though we disagreed often and uh, I think just having that sounding board and really that trust that this other partner is so all in like you are and um, you only have the, you really only have the 
desire to do the best for the organization. There's no other agenda. There's no other ulterior motive. That is so precious and not very many people get that. I mean, you, you may not have that as president of the college. Like you don't really have a counterpart. You go home every night and you talk to and you bounce ideas off of and you argue and you, you know, all the things that we got to do. So I feel so incredibly blessed that I had a partner and uh, I think Bruce gave me a lot of bravery that I might not have had. I know I wouldn't have had without him and probably vice versa in, you know, ways I don't know of. But um, I had had a bad experience owning a company when I was much younger and having it go out of business and losing all the money. And I had from that point on in my career only done things that involved me. I was a single consultant. I was a single teacher. I didn't have any employees. I didn't want any employees. I didn't want to grow anything. And so it was really Bruce who sort of transformed this singular career that I had and turned it more into a publishing company, more into an entire company. And I wouldn't have had the courage to do that without him. Um, So that was something I feel really fortunate about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a love story. It is actually a love story. It's so true. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So half of the art center mission statement are the words influence change. We explore and we think about that a lot here in terms of how we influence change as an institution, but really how we are emboldening, encouraging our students and graduates to influence change. And so one of the really interesting questions becomes, what what does that mean to people who are out in the world and creative that way? And I'm wondering how you would talk about that, how you have influenced change, how you think about the change that you've affected. Well, it's kind of an interesting time in my life because, you know, when I had lynda.com, which we sold over two years ago, and I and Bruce and I are no longer part of it, you know, I really felt that every day that so many people were benefiting from this thing we had created. And I still meet people on a daily basis who tell me that lynda.com helped them with something, you know, whether it be their whole career or just, you know, some aspect of something they wanted to do. And of course, that's really gratifying. And I've always been a bit of a workaholic. Um, I've always worked really hard and probably to the exclusion of some of the things that I've envied other people being able to do, like just being more comfortable doing nothing or being more comfortable not defining themselves by what they do, but more being in the world and being present in the world and being in the moment in the world, like whether it's being with family or being with a loved one or being with nature or or just being and existing. And so I'm at this very interesting personal inflection point where I think I, you know, I sort of feel like, okay, I gave at the office, you know, I did this amazing thing with lynda.com and got that incredible feeling, that incredible rush that you've really helped people, you've really made a mark, made a dent in the universe. And now I'm aspiring towards this thing that is really almost feels selfish, that has less to do with, um, I'm still very philanthropic and very helpful to many, many people, including people in my family and everything. I'm just wired that way. It isn't that I want to stop giving, but I also want to have this more present uh, experience of being present and not defining myself by what I 
do or what I did or who I influenced or what I accomplished. But um, having a, a like a ele- I, I want this other almost indefinable thing that is more about just being at peace with being. <laughs> and, and it's really hard to get. It's really hard to get. And, you know, we're all on the treadmill of we have to work, we have to earn a living, we, you know, we want to do this, we want to do that. So now that I'm off that treadmill a little bit, and just realizing that I've missed a lot of things that I want to experience now, and also just the self care and the health and, you know, often with all these ambitions and huge success that people have, it's a, it's a tremendous personal cost. And you find yourself as an older person. So I'm now, you know, in the probably the, you know, the latter, I'm for sure in the latter part of my life, um, you know, wanting, realizing that health is everything, that, um, you know, energy is everything, that you kind of want, I don't know, for me, at least I'm wanting something different. And it's and it's very confusing. Because it isn't anything that I've done before. Right. But do you think it's about Linda going deeper? Yeah. I, I think it's going deeper, but it's more into my own personal inquiry versus what I'm doing for other people. Right. But I wonder if the going deeper is the is a road to greater compassion, greater understanding, greater ways of certainly the wisdom traditions teach us. And many people meditate actually for this reason, yes, right? Yeah. The, the, the question then becomes, for you to go deeper and for you to do this kind of work that you're talking about yeah. now, yeah. it could, I'm not saying it has to be result-oriented, but it could even bring you deeper and, and more fully into influencing change, more fully into making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, I guess so, possibly. Um, I'm, I'm so not, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it more as something that I'm doing. And also, you know, we were just in Japan Bruce and I took a vacation, something we didn't do a lot of in, you know, 20 years. And we went to a Buddhist temple and we met a Zen master and he said, sit taller, breathe deeper, laugh more, and become a child again. And I just thought that was profound. That was just exactly what I'm trying to do. But it isn't necessarily about influencing other people. You know, it's it's just this very new place right. for me. It is what it is for what it calls for in you right yeah right well i think finally i i I, where i would like to go is just to say um one of you know my favorite poets rilke talks about you know living in ever widening circles and i think uh, maybe you've already spoken about that and and uh what the living questions are but i'm i'm curious now for you at this moment and again i think you've spoken to this to a degree Mm. but what are the next circles and what are the living questions for you that you really want to take forward and, and move with? Well, I'm very drawn to film. You know, I wanted to take time off and I wanted to put my finger, wet my finger to the wind and see what direction resonated for me. And everything pointed to film. And I had this opportunity to become the president of the Santa Barbara Film festival board and um, I've been able to be lucky enough to be in a position to support a lot of independent filmmakers and and people who are making film and I just you know even if I look at lynda.com because we started lynda.com I mean really lynda.com started with me as a teacher and then as a writer and then making these videos and the thing that really 
had the biggest impact was making the videos. And so there's just something about this medium of film that is calling my name and calling to me. And I'm, I'm learning a lot. And I love that too. I have that sort of beginner's mind that I appreciate so much being inexperienced and meeting a whole new group of people and learning about distribution and learning about, you know, all kinds of different aspects of filmmaking. And that's the thing, that's my ever-widening circle right now. And then I would say the other ever-widening circle is just about personal health and balance, life life balance, and um, striving for this kind of different way of being, which is hard because it is, you know, you work for your whole career towards recognition and uh, accomplishment. And I could have, you know, sold lynda.com and then been the poster child for female entrepreneurship or any number of things for, you know, the future of education, all of these sort of logical paths to, um, to go down. And I just didn't really want to just rest on laurels. And I just, it kind of got boring. It wasn't, it just wasn't personally stimulating to do that. And so even though I'm kind of an unknown and I love that too, I love being anonymous. I love, um, I changed my appearance dramatically on purpose, you know, because I just, I wanted to do something completely new. And that's just, to me, what life is and what being a lifelong learner is, is to constantly look for that next thing and do something new. Well, I can't thank you enough for your (laughs) wisdom and your honesty Mm -hmm. and your eloquent and beautiful responses Mm -hmm. to these questions. I I really thank you so much for doing this very, very meaningful time with you. Well, the college is so lucky to have you, Lauren, and it is truly a pleasure to be interviewed by you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.